The crime is that Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld knew all along that the intelligence was phony. They were just looking for a pretext for war, and they knew that many Americans are too stupid or too disinterested to challenge any of this. They were looking for a trigger that would allow them to install their warped neoconservative vision of democracy in Iraq. I live in the country that has the largest economy, the largest military, the greatest power the world has ever seen, and yet we are stomping all over the world like an angry two-year-old waving missiles. And this is really dangerous. We need the rule of law and a, the belief in the law as the only thing just about that can restrain us. Stop calling us immigrants. We're refugees. We are here because of American policies. We're not immigrating for other for you know better weather uh this is a uh forced uh migration of folks that have to go to other places and become refugees largely due to policies that we've created Welcome to On the Ground on the groundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital I'm Esther Averam, and on today's show, we have voices from the People's Tribunal on the Iraq War. The tribunal was sponsored by Code Pink December 1st and 2nd, 2016, here in Washington, D.C., at the University of the District of Columbia Law School. The first day focused on the lies that government officials used to invade Iraq. Ray McGovern is a veteran CIA officer, now a political activist. He was a CIA analyst from 63 to 90, and in the 1980s chaired the National Intelligence Estimates and prepared the President's Daily Brief. He received the Intelligence Commendation Medal at his retirement, returning it in 2006 to protest the CIA's involvement in torture. McGovern's post-retirement work includes commentating on intelligence issues and in 2003, co-founding Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. There's lots to say here. Um, I'm thinking of the first time I was asked to pronounce on the lies leading to the war in Iraq. It was Peter Kuznick from American University who called me up two days into the war, and he said, Ray, I'd like you to speak at a teaching on, on the lies uh, leading to the war. And my first question instinctively was, well, how much time do I have? <laughs> and he said, seven minutes. I said, you forget about it, seven minutes. We'll need two days to talk about the lies. Now, we don't have two days, we have five minutes. So let me just refer to the to the arch-typical example of documentary proof that this was all based on a lie, and that, as you all know, if you've, if you've watched David Swanson and his good work on afterdowningstreet.org, you'll know that Downing Street Minutes, which are authentic and recognized as so by the British government, said that the war would be justified by the conjunction of terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Now, this was a briefing given by the head of British intelligence after he had consulted with George Tenet, the head of American intelligence, on the 20th of July, 2002. This is the 23rd of July, 2002, three days later. And he said, George Bush has decided on removing 
Saddam Hussein by force. The war will be justified by the conjunction of weapons of mass destruction and terrorism and the facts and intelligence will be shaped around the policy. Now, there it is, folks. The facts and the intelligence will be shaped around the policy. No for further need do we have of proof. The minutes were leaked and not available until 19, uh, 2005, so a couple of years after the invasion, but there they were. So what's the bottom line for me now? Well, the bottom line for me now is that no one has arrested George Bush. I'm old enough to remember World War II. I was alive for the whole war. I was just little. But after the war, there was the Nuremberg Tribunal. And our representative, the chief prosecutor, looked at those Nazis and said, you're not here because you lost the war. You're here because you started it. And the war against Iraq was the archetypical definition of a war of aggression, which Nuremberg defined precisely as to initiate a war of aggression is to commit the supreme international crime, differing from other war crimes only insofar as it contains the accumulated evil of the whole. Accumulated evil? Well, think torture, folks. Think kidnapping. Think black prisons all around the world. Think about, think about staining our European na neighbors and others. 52 nations cooperated with the so-called rendition, the kidnapping of people for torture. So my point simply is that it's high time that we held these people accountable. The founders of our country were very careful in crafting our constitution. They expressly acknowledged that people being people and the president being given the extraordinary powers that our constitution gave a president, every generation or so, there would be someone who would abuse those powers and needed to be impeached. Now, I'm going to ask Jody to read the back of this sweatshirt because it has every relevance to what we're going on right, right now. Article 2, Section 4. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for the conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So they were careful enough to put that right in the Constitution, right? So what happened? The Democrats took over the Congress. John Conyers, the head of the Judiciary Committee, became the person to initiate impeachment proceedings. Cindy Sheehan and I visited his office. She had a special relationship with him then. And we said, are you going to impeach the president? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, who are you? Who are you, Mr. Intelligence, uh, to tell me there's nothing in the Constitution that says John Conyers needs to impeach the president? I said, you are head of the Judiciary Committee, are you not? Yeah. So it's your job. Now, all his lawyers there were sort of needed to go to the bathroom when somebody challenged this very august. And, you know, he's not the worst of them. But we know what he said. Nancy Pelosi says, we can't impeach you know why? Because then we won't win as big in the next election. Okay? That's how bad it is, folks. 
Did Nancy Pelosi know about the torture? Yes, she did. What did she say? She said the CIA lies all the time. Okay, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi just reelected to what? Her seventh term is, uh, yeah, give me a break. So I'll just finish by saying that I love Bernie Sanders and I wish him luck working within the system. But if we're going to change anything, folks, if we're going to hold anybody accountable for these crimes, these war crimes, it's up to us. My favorite theologian, Annie Dullard, said, there's only us. There has been anybody else. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bay. So um, the third testifier of this morning opening is Rayed Gerard. He's an Iraqi-American architect, blogger, and political advocate based in Washington, D.C. Raya translated the new Iraq oil law that was proposed by the Bush administration. He also translated multiple copies of the U.S.-Iraqi security agreement signed between the two nations in 2008. He testified before the U.S. Congress in two hearings and helped invite three Iraqi parliamentary delegations that testified before the U.S. Congress in 2007 and 8. He's now the Policy Impact Coordinator at American Friends Service Committee. Riyad. Thank you, Jody. I was born in Iraq, um, and um, I lived there throughout the 90s. And that's the time that my organization, the American Friends Service Committee, uh, was very active opposing the Iraq War. Uh, unfortunately, there is a perception, uh, a misperception, that the Iraq War started uh, in 2003. Uh, the Iraq War actually started back in 1991, and it's been going on since. That's very important to realize that uh, my organization, AFSC, opposed the 1991 war, uh, opposed the sanctions throughout the 90s, and opposed the 2003 invasion and occupation. And we still oppose the Iraq war now because there is an ongoing war. We have thousands of U.S. troops in Iraq, uh, and the United States continues to arm and equip uh, hundreds of thousands of militia members in Iraq. These are proxy groups that we are arming, equipping, and training uh, who are committing human rights violations and sometimes war crimes uh, on, a, on a daily basis. I wanted to talk today about the cost of uh, the Iraq war. I know m many people will, will mention, uh, will touch on more details about the lies uh, and there, there were many lies. I think there is a very similar policy since 1991, uh, and there are so many lies to cover that up. You know, back in the 90s, the reason for the U.S. In, in involvement in Iraq was to liberate Kuwait from Iraq or to protect Iraq's neighbors from Iraq. Then it became all about protecting um, Shiites from Sunnis, Kurds from Arabs, and then it became about uh, weapons of mass destruction. And it shifted to uh, speaking about democracy and nation building. Uh, and now, we're, now I think the, the most recent narrative is that the U.S. is there to get rid of an evil group called ISIS. And that's our mandate. So there are always lies and, and things made up. 
The cost of the Iraq war uh, is tre- tremendous. Uh, I, I was the country director of uh, Civic uh, Worldwide. Uh, it's it's uh, an organization that um, had a survey for civilian casualties in the country. And there are three different levels of uh, numbers uh, for Iraqi civilian casualties. They, they seem to be contradictory at face value, but they're actually... They tell different stories. The numbers that uh, Civic and other organizations that went door to door to collect information about civilians, our numbers were in the thousands because these are the numbers of stories of actual people who died, their names, their addresses, uh, the details about their, their attacks. So we had a few thousand names just in the first 100 days of the invasion of civilians who were killed. So now if you look at the names of civilians who were killed, we're talking about um, you know, around f- five to 10,000 documented names. Now, the second level is the numbers of civilians reported by media. And the best source for that is Iraq Body Count. So Iraq Body Count is a British uh, um, organization, and the numbers there are, are around 200 or 250,000. And th- this is anyone who is killed and reported by uh, the media. The third number, which is the highest one, is the full estimated number. And that's based on um, sampling. And, and that number, there are three or four different organizations from the U.S., from Britain, who did sampling surveys in Iraq and concluded that there were more than one million Iraqis who were killed since 2003. One million excess violent deaths since 2003. So these three numbers might look different you know, at face value, but they're actually complementary because the one million is the larger estimated number. 250,000 is what the media has reported. And as you would imagine, the media wouldn't report every incident of killing. And the 10 to 20,000 is the number of actual names that we have. The other cost of the war that I want to touch on today is the financial cost, the, uh, how much Iraq lost uh, from the war. And, and for that, I want to cite an interesting similar example, which is um, how much Kuwait lost because of the Iraqi invasion to Kuwait in, 2000 and, uh, in 1991. So back in 1991, Iraq invaded Kuwait uh, in a similar illegal and immoral invasion and occupation. And the UN created a, 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 a committee at the time. It's UNCC, the United Nations Compensation Commission. And UNCC is in charge of estimating the amount uh, of damages that happened in Kuwait and then made Iraq pay for these damages. So Iraq has been paying a portion of its income to fulfill around $55 billion in estimated damages in Kuwait. And the way that those damages were calculated, they were calculated based on infrastructure destruction and based on uh, economic losses, you know, hotels that did not, were not occupied uh, with, with residents during the Iraqi attack. So if we were to follow the United Nations' own system that Iraq has been um, you know, using to pay compensation to Kuwait, the U.S. will be paying Iraq trillions of dollars for the 
uh, infrastructure destruction and because of all of the loss in economic prosperity and, and economic opportunity. So that's the other thing that I want to suggest people look into, uh, UNCC as a model for compensation to Iraq. We talk about how this war has costed U.S. taxpayers uh, three or four or five trillion dollars. We should also think about how much this war costed Iraqis themselves. I want to introduce a video. There was one Congress member who spoke the obvious truth out of the entirety of both houses of Congress when it mattered, a truth then acknowledged by about half the country and now belatedly by the vast majority of us that war was wrong. This was Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Democrat from California, representing now the 13th District, uh, serving what was then the 9th District from 98 to 2013. We're going to watch a video of what Congresswoman Lee said then and then hear a statement from her now read by Sierra Taylor. Congresswoman Lee is busy today on the Hill. Gentlewoman from California is uh, recognized for a minute and a half. Thank you. I want to thank our ranking member and my friend for yielding. Mr. Speaker, members, I rise today really with a very heavy heart, one that is filled with sorrow for the families and the loved ones who were killed and injured this week. Only the most foolish and the most callous would not understand the grief that has really gripped our people and millions across the world. This unspeakable act on the United States has really forced me, however, to rely on my moral compass, my conscience, and my God for direction. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. Now this resolution will pass, although we all know that the President can wage a war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment, let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful, yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Thank you, and I yield the balance of my time. Gentlewoman's time has expired. From Representative Barbara Lee. Thank you for organizing this People's Tribunal. I'm sorry that I could not be with you today due to prior commitments on Capitol Hill. As you know, I stood up, along with many of you, and opposed the unjust and unnecessary 2002 invasion of Iraq. 
while President George W. Bush and his administration pushed Congress to authorize the use of military force, there was a small group on Capitol Hill demanding real evidence and diplomacy. Unfortunately, our efforts were not successful, and we are still fighting this unending war more than a decade later. On October 10, 2002, the House of Representatives considered an authorization for the use of military force. I offered an amendment that would have prevented this war. Instead of going it alone, my amendment would have leveraged the United Nations' capacity to investigate the Bush administration's claim that Iraq was development of weapons of mass destruction. Nearly 14 years later, we now know that these claims were completely false. Had my amendment passed, how many lives would have been saved? How many trillions of dollars would have not been wasted on this unnecessary war? Would ISIS exist today? It is past time for the American people to understand what really happened and what's still happening in the, United, in the Middle East. Thank you again for your dedication and commitment to the truth. Thank you. Next, we will hear from Vijay Prashad. He is an Indian historian, journalist, commentator, and Marxist intellectual. He is the George and Martha Kellner Chair in South Asian History and Professor of International Studies at Trinity College. In 2013-14, he was the Edward Said Chair of the American University of Beirut. Prashad is the author of 17 books, and his book, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, from 2007, was chosen as the best nonfiction book by the Asian American Writers Workshop in 2008 and won the Muzaffar Ahmed Book Award in 2009. Prashad is also a journalist. He writes regularly for Frontline, The Hindu, Alternate, Birgun, and is a contributing editor for Himal South Asian. He usually writes on Middle Eastern politics, development economics, North-South relations, and current events. In 2015, Prashad joined as the chief editor of the New Delhi-based publisher Left Word Books. He is also an advisory board member of the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, part of the global BDS movement. Here is Vijay Prashad. The United States has been upset with Iraq since at least 1958. You know, the war that began in 2003 wasn't the beginning of American malfeasance against Iraq. In 1958, there was a nationalist coup led by Brigadier Qasim, backed by the communists. And from 1958 onwards, the Americans basically have been trying to destabilize Iraq. In fact, in the 1960s, at several junctures, the United States tried to overthrow the nationalist regime. And in fact, when the Ba'ath come into power, the Ba'ath Party, which later is led by Saddam Hussein, uh, who governs Iraq from 1978 to 2003, he's almost fully backed by the Americans, by Western powers, uh, and by the Gulf Arab states, including Saudi Arabia. So Saddam Hussein... Uh, when he takes power finally in 1978, starts to crack down on people within Iraq who don't actually uh, adhere to his rule, his idea, his vision of what Iraq should be. So one of the places where Saddam puts a great deal of his effort is to crush the Kurdish movement in the northern part of Iraq. Now, the 
Kurdish movement in northern Iraq was heavily influenced by communism and was backed fully by the Soviet Union. Saddam at this time was armed by Western powers with chemical weapons. And in the war against the Kurds, again, armed by the West with the full knowledge of the West, used chemical weapons against the Kurds in what was called the Anfal campaign. And during this campaign, in the town of Halabja, a town in the Kurdish region in the north of Iraq, uh, the Iraqi government used chemical weapons, attacked that town, and really demolished the Kurdish community of Halabja. This was a great uh, terrorist action conducted by Saddam. The uh, machinery for the attack on the Kurds of Halabja was provided by the United States, by the Federal Republic of Germany, by other Western countries. They entirely backed this as a war, proxy war against the Soviet Union. Later, one of the great lies of the 2003 Iraq war was that the United States needed to go in to overthrow the Saddam regime because it had weapons of mass destruction, including chemical weapons, and it had used these chemical weapons against the Kurds. Of course, the United States, the Germans and others had provided these weapons precisely for Saddam to use them against the Kurds. The other great adversary of the Iraqi government led by Saddam Hussein was Iran. And in fact, the Saudis, the Gulf Arabs, the United States, Western Europeans backed the Iraqis to attack Iran in 1980 after the Iranian revolution. And once again, the West, the United States, the Germans and others provided Iraq with chemical weapons, with mustard gas, for instance, with nerve gas, which the Iraqis used against the Iranians in the battlefield. And, you know, there are very sad stories of Iranian troops uh, leaving the battlefield, coughing blood in trains. There are uh, stories of train cars going away from the battlefield where the smell inside was of ga mustard gas because they had it in their lungs. And as they were coughing, the gas was coming out. At that time, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the religious leader of, of Iran, uh, released a fatwa saying that uh, Iran will never produce weapons of mass destruction. The, uh, what they have seen in the battlefield is too grotesque. It's not something uh, to imagine. So the second lie of the Iraq war related to the first is that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which they used in the war uh, against Iran. Yeah, that's all true. But of course, these were provided by the West. They were egged, the Saddam was egged on to attack Iran. And so the Western complicity in the use of those weapons uh, needs to be right there front and center. Finally, the real lie of this war. You know, when Saddam Hussein uh, and his uh, army invaded Kuwait in um, the period just before uh, the Soviet Union had collapsed, that is in 1990, August 2nd, 1990, the United States, it is said, uh, it's, um, through its ambassador, April Glaspie, essentially gave the Iraqis a green light to invade Kuwait or to do something uh, because they had a dispute with Kuwait about the Rumaila oil field. And so uh, Saddam invades Kuwait. The United States suddenly comes in with heavy force and removes uh, the Iraqis from Kuwait and sets up a sanctions regime. Now, this lie is an important lie. This lie is a lie that Saddam is a brutal dictator who kills his own people and therefore should be overthrown. Again, remember, Saddam Hussein essentially was part of 
a global uh, you know, network which included the Saudis, Gulf Arabs, the Western Europeans, the Americans, etc., in a war against the Soviets and later in a war against Iran. So Saddam's brutality was part and parcel of this global network. But the brutality of the sanctions regime against Iraq is to be kept in mind. You know, the death toll was so high and there's no point speculating on numbers, but I'll just give you one statistic of of some importance because it shows you the morality of the West vis-a-vis this part of the world. On a television program, uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Madeleine Albright, was asked about a UNICEF report which showed that 500,000, half a million Iraqi children had died as a consequence of the sanctions. And Madeleine Albright listened to this uh, question about the 500,000 children. At no point did she contest the number or say that there are mitigating circumstances. At no point did she say that this is lies, etc. What she said, I think, is, is really bears repeating and it bears understanding. What she said was that, yes, 500,000 children have died, but it's a price worth paying. In other words, the price for the United States to garrot Iraq, this is before 2003, the price for the United States to garrot Iraq, to throttle Iraq, strangle Iraq, is a price worth paying. And that price is, of course, 500,000 children killed because of the sanctions regime. When the United States goes in, in 2003, to finally overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein, uh, this was merely the icing on top of a very, very cruel and bitter cake that has again been baked by the Gulf Arabs, Western Europeans, United States, and the regime of Saddam Hussein. They were part and parcel of creating a diabolical situation for the Iraqi people who suffered greatly in this long period, and even more so after 2003, when their country was destroyed. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Varum, and today we're hearing voices from the People's Tribunal on the Iraq War, sponsored by Code Pink, December 1st and 2nd, 2016 in Washington, D.C., at the University of the District of Columbia Law School. You just heard Vijay Prashad, and before him, Raya Jarrar, Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of California, and Ray McGovern at the top of the show. We'll be right back with more voices from the tribunal. Item all up. Come on, fire. Hey, Roger.
Medea Benjamin, born Susan Benjamin, is an American political activist. I assume everyone knows that. Uh, best known for co-founding Code Pink. And along with activist and author Kevin Danaher, the fair trade advocacy group Global Exchange. Benjamin was also the Green Party candidate in California in 2000 for the U.S. Senate. She currently contributes to Op-Ed News and the Huffington Post. In 2003, the Los Angeles Times described her as, quote, one of the high-profile leaders, end quote, of the peace movement. I would describe her as one of the best leaders of the peace movement. Medea Benjamin. Uh, unfortunately, the peace movement was not capable of stopping the Bush administration, and uh, here we are today. I want to go back to my first um, action in Congress with Code Pink, which happened on September 18, 2002. That was the day that Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, testified before the House Armed Services Committee about why the U.S. military should invade Iraq. He accused Saddam Hussein of having weapons of mass destruction. He talked about an imminent September 11th-style attack uh, perpetrated by Saddam Hussein and said that Saddam Hussein was a global threat. My colleague Diane Wilson and I were in the audience just behind Donald Rumsfeld. It was the first time we had ever attended a congressional hearing. Shaking, I got up and belted out, Mr. Rumsfeld, we need weapons inspections, not war. Why are you obstructing the inspections? Isn't this really about oil? How many civilians will be killed? How many Iraqis will be killed? We unfurled banners that said UN inspections, not US war. And we re repeated that chant over and over and over again until the police came to forcibly remove us. Once we're out of the room, Rumsfeld joked about us. And then he said, of course, the country that threw the inspectors out was not the United States. It was not the United Nations. It was Iraq that threw the inspectors out. That too was a lie. Iraq did not expel the inspectors. In December 1998, the inspectors themselves withdrew for their own safety in anticipation of a U.S.-British bombing campaign. In February 2003, we decided as Code Pink to travel to Iraq in a delegation. This was happening just uh, weeks before the U.S. decided to invade. One of the reasons we went is that we wanted to speak to the inspectors ourselves and see what they thought. We met with them and they told us that there were no weapons of mass destruction. They said that even if there were, the presence of so many inspectors would make it impossible for any weapons to be used. Two weeks after we returned on March 7th, the International Atomic Energy Agency, known as the IAEA, and the U.S. Special Commission on Iraq reported to the US, UN Security Council. Based on more than 100 visits to suspect sites and private interviews, they concluded, uh, the Al-Baradai concluded that they had found to date no evidence or plausible indication of the revival of a nuclear weapons program in Iraq. The Bush administration dismissed the inspector's findings because their conclusions contradicted those of the U.S. government. The next day, George Bush went on the radio to address the American people, arguing the, the inspections team did not need any more time because Saddam Hussein was still refusing to disarm, and the rest is history. 
Iraq posed absolutely no threat to the United States, but the American people, traumatized by the 9-11 attack, were easily duped by the Bush administration's propaganda. Americans were victims of an elaborate public relations campaign barraged every day with distortions, deception, and lies. By the start of the war, 66% of Americans mistakenly thought that Saddam Hussein was behind the 9-11 attacks. 79% thought he was close to having a nuclear program, weapons. Of course, Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11, had no nuclear weapons, and had no functioning chemical or biological weapons by that time. The deception was only achieved with the complicity of the U.S. mainstream media, a press that refused to air the voices of dissenters like ourselves and instead sought to commercialize the war, embed themselves with the military, and profit from the invasion. At Code Pink, we worked furiously to stop the invasion and continued to protest after the war started. We held daily vigils in front of the White House, went on hunger strikes, organized massive demonstrations, protested at the homes of Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Democratic and Republican Congress people, interrupted dozens of congressional hearings to speak the truth, and over and over again we were arrested for our nonviolent civil disobedience, spending much time in cold, bleak jail cells. For our work, we were attacked viciously as being unpatriotic, treated like traitors, hate mail, death threats, violent phone calls were a constant. Speaking at the Heritage Foundation in 2007, when the, a war had already been dragging on for five devastating years, President George Bush told Congress that they should spend more time listening to the military commanders on the ground in Iraq and less time, quote, responding to the demands of Code Pink protesters. We only wish that Congress and George Bush had listened to the demands of Code Pink and the millions of protesters who back in 2002 warned that the attacking Iraq would be a disaster. There's no decision more grave than taking your nation to war. There's nothing more criminal than basing that war on lies. And there's nothing more derelict than failing to prosecute those responsible for taking us to war on the basis of lies. And that is where we stand today. In the face of the Bush administration's colossal deceptions, Barack Obama, even before he officially took office in 2009, said, we need to look forward as opposed to looking backwards. In other words, we should ignore this inconscionable invasion, the fact that no one was held accountable means that today many of the same architects of the Iraq war, from General David Petraeus to John Bolton, are flocking to join the Trump administration. These hawks have their eye on the next target, Iran. That's why the Code Pink Tribunal, with all of these testimonies about the lives and costs of the war, is so critical, because as history has shown, those who failed to learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Thank you. Thank you, Medea. I want to introduce John Kiriakou. John Kiriakou was a CIA analyst was a, uh, and case officer, was a senior investigator for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a counterterrorism consultant for ABC News, and an author. He was the first U.S. government official to confirm in December 2007 that waterboarding was used to interrogate al-Qaeda prisoners, and he described this as torture. On October 22, 2012, Kiriakou was sentenced to 30 months in federal prison 
not for torture, but for talking about torture, over his decision to blow the whistle on the CIA's post-9-11 torture tactics. John Kiriakou. Thank you, and good morning. The crime is that Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld knew all along that the intelligence was phony. They were just looking for a pretext for war, and they knew that many Americans are too stupid or too disinterested to challenge any of this. They were looking for a trigger that would allow them to install their warped neoconservative vision of democracy in Iraq. I remember participating in a secure video teleconference with the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of Defense. It was chaired by Vice President Cheney. I was a minor figure, and so I was a note-taker for the director of the CIA sitting against the back wall. And I remember a very senior official of this government saying, in complete seriousness, as soon as we cross the border, they're going to throw flowers at us. Having no understanding that we were invading a sovereign country, slaughtering its people. And he believed that we would be greeted as, as, uh, as friends and liberators. Now, the crime is that millions of Iraqis were killed, they were wounded, they were maimed, they were displaced. Thousands of Americans died for nothing. No good reason at all. That's the crime, and that's why we're here today. It's up to all of us to demand justice, even though time has passed. No, mu- no matter how much time has passed, we have to demand justice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next testifier is Rebecca Gordon. She teaches in the philosophy department of the University of San Francisco and for the university's Leo T. McCarthy Center for Public Service and Common Good. Her latest book, American Nuremberg, The Officials Who Should Stand Trial for Post-9-11 War Crimes. Rebecca. A big part of my life is the opportunity to talk with young people about the most important values in their lives as they're trying to figure out what those things are. And in the rest of my work, I've written a couple of books recently, one called Mainstreaming Torture and the other called American Nuremberg. And this latest book is about the whole question of holding U.S. government officials responsible for the crimes that have been committed in the war on terror. And so when I was first approached about writing this book, I wasn't really happy with the title because my dad was raised an Orthodox Jew. He lived in the United States through the period of World War II. He was in the U.S. Army. And I think he would have had a hard time with the idea of comparing horrible as it's been, the crimes of the war on terror with the scope of death and destruction of World War II, which killed somewhere between 65 and 85 million people around the world, 20 20 million of them at least in Asia, which we don't hear about at all. And the vast, vast majority of them were civilians. But the more I studied about the Nuremberg Tribunals and reread my history, the more I realized how important it was what was done at Nuremberg. Because for the first time, we had nations of the world coming together and saying international law is real law. And when you break it, there are real consequences. And this is a principle that I think is even more important today when 
I live in the country that has the largest economy, the largest military, the greatest power the world has ever seen. And yet we are stomping all over the world like an angry two-year-old waving missiles. And this is really dangerous. We need the rule of law and a, the belief in the law as the only thing just about that can restrain us. So when I looked at what the people who set up the Nuremberg Tribunals thought about, one thing really became clear to me. There were four powers. So it was the Soviet Union, France, the United Kingdom, or Great Britain as it was called then, and the United States. Two of those, Great Britain and the United States, and it's ironic considering future, the history that was to come, absolutely insisted that of the three categories of crimes that were going to be um, that were going to be tried, people were going to be tried for, the first and most important one was this crime they called a crime against peace or making an aggressive war. And this is exactly what the Codepin Tribunal, what the People's Tribunal is all about. And what they said was, look, all of the other crimes of the Nazi regime, including the extermination of my people, the Jews, but also of Roma people, disabled people, LGBT people, all of those exterminations arose after and almost as a consequence of the original crime, which was the belief that Germany had the right to invade other countries. We forget, you know, because we associate the Holocaust with Germany, but the people who died, the vast majority of them were actually in other countries, Poland, for example, which had been invaded by Germany. The Holocaust couldn't have happened without that first crime. In the same way, in the very same way, it became clear to me as I thought back on the history of this so-called war on terror, that it was the desire to have an excuse to invade Iraq that led to the other crimes. So, for example, the torture, the torture at Guantanamo, the torture and the CIA in Afghanistan and in the other CIA dark sites. The very first people who were tortured were tortured because either Dick Cheney in the CIA or Donald Rumsfeld in the Defense Department wanted somebody somewhere to be tortured into saying there was a connection between 9-11 and Saddam Hussein. And so, for example, Abu Zubaydah, who is uh, a man who is still in jail in um, who is still in jail in Guantanamo and who the CIA has said should remain without any significant contact with any other human being for the rest of his life, was the first person to be waterboarded by the CIA. And what they wanted him to say was that there was a connection between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. The reality was there was no such connection. They believed he was the number two or number three man in Al-Qaeda. They were wrong. And they knew they were wrong as early as 2006, but they kept on repeating this lie. And if you look at Dick Cheney's or George W. Bush's memoirs, the lie is still in there that he said there was this connection. And it's not true. And actually, the federal government very quietly withdrew that accusation years later in the case of Abu Zaydah, Zubaydah. And you can look that up. But similarly at Guantanamo, they were trying to get the same thing. They were trying to get people they were detaining there that they had picked up in Afghanistan to say that there was this connection between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, which didn't exist. And so Donald Rumsfeld was really frustrated. 
And he wrote to them and said, look, can't you do better? And they wrote back and said, well, here's a list of a bunch of things that we want to try on these people. And some of them, literally, they had thought up because they sat around watching old, old episodes of the TV show 24. I mean, it really is life imitating art in the most disgusting of ways. So Donald Rumsfeld wrote this famous memo that anybody can see on the Internet. It's available now in which he's allowed them to do these this list of different techniques, including uh, forcing people to go without sleep for 48 hours at a time. And we now understand that this is a very powerful form of psychological torture that very quickly makes people psychotic. In the same way, putting people in boxes and holding them without human contact. Human beings are, we are social animals. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, says this. It's the fundamental, our fundamental nature. When we're deprived of contact with other human beings, as happened in Guantanamo and happens in our U.S. prisons on a daily basis, we very quickly start to see things that aren't there, hear things that aren't there, and become crazy. And there are people in this country who have spent three or four decades without physical or face-to-face contact with other human beings. Similarly, we were doing this in Guantanamo in addition to a series of other more painful kinds of, of torture, including what are called stress positions. And stress positions sound like, oh, well, you just have to stand in a certain position for a while. But what's so brilliant if you want to torture someone about stress positions is that they can cause more pain than anything you can do to someone with an electrical current, but they don't leave a mark. And this is what Donald Rumsfeld approved. So the purpose of it was to get people to say, yes, Saddam Hussein was behind September 11th, which, of course, he wasn't. It's really interesting about who the September 11th pilots and hijackers were, because every few years I ask my students who are 18 and 19 year olds, right, who were the pilots? What country did they come from? So back in 2006, 2007, when I was first teaching at USF, I had a lot of students who had family who were fighting in Iraq. Some of them even had fathers who had been called up again for that war. And they, um, When I asked the students who was responsible for 9-11, they were sure that those hijackers were from Iraq, that they were all Iraqis. A few years later, when George W. Bush was trying to gin up a new war against Iran this time, I asked the same question, and my students were sure they were from Iran. So those hijackers have become sort of this empty slate that any government can write any enemy on and just point the American people in that direction. So coming back to the war in Iraq, what I concluded, and this is in American Nuremberg, but it's you know, just dead obvious, was that the Bush and Cheney administration came into office with a plan to invade Iraq. And the plan was actually written out in 1998 by an organization called the Project for a New American Century. And you can read, and it's very interesting because it starts with taking Saddam Hussein out in Iraq and then goes on to do what? Destabilize Syria. What has happened? And look at the millions of people who are suffering between Iraq 
and Syria. Iraq still has over a million internal refugees, people who have been displaced. And right now, as I'm speaking to you, you know, the final attacks on Mosul are going on. Who knows how many people are going to die in the process of liberating that area. And I put liberating in quotes, not that I would ever want to live under the rule of the Islamic State in any way, but Iraq is a problem that the U.S. has one answer for, and that answer is bombs and more bombs, destruction and death. If you want to count the number of people who've died in the Iraq war, it's hard to do. And there are many different counts that go anywhere from 200,000 to over a million. And it depends on how you count and who's doing the counting. But the reality is that none of those deaths needed to occur. We're happy to have here our dear friend. The next speaker is Andy Chalal. Andy was born in Iraq. He is an artist, an activist, and an entrepreneur, best known for the series of fabulous restaurants that he has in the Washington, D.C. area known as Busboys and Poets. He also was a mayoral candidate uh, for Washington, D.C. in 2014, and he was very active in the lead-up to oppose the Iraq war. Thank you so much for having me. So... So uh, when I was asked to come here and uh, t testify, I didn't know what exactly I'm testifying about. You know, war sucks. Uh, the Iraqi people are devastated. Things are horrible. And, um, you know, end of conversation uh, at some level. I think it's Im important to understand, obviously, the human cost that this war has brought about, because that's my relationship to Iraq. I left Iraq when I was 10 years old, um, left back a lot of relatives, aunts and uncles and cousins and all that, whom most of them have left. So displacement has been one of the major issues that's happened uh, to Iraqis. They've been displaced, uh, lots of them. Uh, by some estimates, up to 5 million people have been displaced, had to either move out of the country or uh, move away. And to make matters worse, they moved to areas that they thought were safe and then those areas became problematic as well. So they've had to continue to be nomadic to move from one place to another. Um, you know, we, we I was at a, at a conference yesterday. We were talking about about immigrants and the whole backlash of immigrants. I said, you know, stop calling us immigrants. We're refugees. We are here because of American policies. We're not immigrating for other, for, you know, better weather. Uh, this is a uh, forced uh, migration of folks that have to go to other places and become refugees, largely due to policies that we've created, whether you're from Central America, from South America, from Asia, from Africa, wherever you may be, oftentimes people move here because of American policy. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. You have been listening to Voices from the People's Tribunal on the Iraq War, sponsored by Code Pink, December 1st and 2nd, 2016, in Washington, D.C., at the University of the District of Columbia Law School. The last voice you heard was that of Andy Shalal. Before him, Rebecca Gordon, John Kiriakou, and Medea Benjamin at the bottom of the hour. The Tribunal is an ongoing project that can be reached and viewed in full at iraqtribunal.org. On our next show, we will feature voices from day two of the Tribunal, which focus on the cost of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, produced for WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Our shows are also available on iTunes. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Averam. Raise your voice out there. Peace. Thank you.